Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud Base Mayhem. As you can tell from my voice, I am a little under the weather, and this has been an absolutely nutty week, and I have not been able to line up anybody to speak with. I've got a lot in the uh, in the plans and a whole bunch of good shows coming your way, but we are going to go to the archives this week, both because I don't really feel like I could do an interview very well, and I'm going to have something lined up for you. So, I'm going to let Miles pick this out, and before we get to the show, I've got a couple things that I think my voice can get through that I've been wanting to talk about. One is cloud flying, just a couple little things here that I think our community could uh, know more about and hopefully do better with going going forward. I got an email from a pilot who's a helicopter pilot down in New Zealand. Uh, very well trained, lots of hours in heli and getting into paragliding and has been surprised by the almost encouragement of, you know, launching into cloud and that kind of thing. He found that pretty wild because of all the training they go through in helicopters to deal with cloud and helicopters, obviously, uh, you, you wouldn't, it's, uh, it, well, anyway, it's very easy to get disoriented in a cloud. This is a, a major thing that comes up at every world cup I've ever been in is cloud flying. And depending on what part of the world you're in clouds, you know, down in New Zealand, when they're just wispy and, you know, really not strong, not cumulonimbus clouds, maybe that's safer, but you all hear stories from, you know, I get a lot of X Alps pilots on the show and you heard Aaron's wild story of launching into cloud and landing in cloud and using his instruments to find a field in a place that had a ton of cables. Um, obviously that is next level type stuff and very, very risky even for Aaron and not encouraged. These are just stories for fun, but let's not emulate X Alps pilots. Let's just be smart as pilots. So just want to put it out there to the community that cloud flying is incredibly disorienting. I went back recently and, and watched my track log from the Alaska trip, some of those flights and it got, it was pretty humorous watching my flight. I went into the cloud there for, this is in the movie. It's kind of the opening scene. I flew in a cloud for more than 20 minutes and I looked like a drunken sailor on my track log. I mean, I had my compass, I had my instruments and I was clearly just all over the place. Uh, and I, my biggest thing was just staying clear of terrain. But when you look at the track log, it's just I just looked like a yeah drunken sailor in the sky. So uh, it is incredibly disorienting. Cloud suck is really scary. When you're in the white room, you have no idea if your wing is over your head or below your feet. Um, and and even if you have a ton of training, like this gentleman does down in New Zealand, it can really be tough. And in helicopters, they have instruments to help out with all that, and we don't. So. Anyway, just wanted to put it out to the community. Let's not, certainly not encourage uh, cloud flying and, you know, surfing up the side of a cloud can be awfully fun, especially in places that don't have big mean clouds like Columbia, but uh, just, yeah, just be careful because they can be, and they are causing uh, a lot of midairs, especially in comps and I saw several in the super final and these are some of the best pilots in the world. So uh, they do cause problems. They can be really dangerous, and let's give them some respect. The other is, uh, was re- I got an email from my friend JK, who did the great show on 
on threat and error management. This is a chapter in the book, a longtime Air Force and a commercial airline pilot. And they have, you know, all these steps and one of their big things that they go through is checklists. And this is, you know, again, in the book and in the show, I won't go into in depth here, but he was standing in line just two spots back and watched the incident that ended up in a pretty bad injury in Chelan two seasons ago. And the, you know, the, the common, uh, when the people who saw that really felt like that was an, un, you know, there, there were things that could be done as there always are. And, uh, that, that could have stopped that incident from happening. And, and he compared it to, with the airlines, you know, they, they know that it's, it's when you're close to the ground is when you need to be way more heads up and you have all these steps that the, they train to go through if they have an engine failure or some kind of catastrophic failure when they're close to the ground and one is on takeoff. And it, you know, this are, these are kind of all caps reminders of what you need to do if, and one of the things that's pretty common is is launching and getting a cravat and and or just getting a cravat and they can be dealt with really in the same way but obviously when you're launching when you're close to the ground it's a lot more it can be a lot more extreme so just want to run through cuz the the main thing his his big takeaway was what would i have done in that same situation. So he went back through and took almost a month to kind of review it over and over and over again in his head. You know, what would I have done if I had gotten a similar situation? The the cravat happened before this pilot left the ground and he was being yelled at by the meat director to abort, to abort, to abort. So that was the first mistake. He had kind of a soft wing and had a pretty small cravat <clears throat> manageable. And I'm sure the pilot just thought, well, I can handle this in the air. Once he got in the air, um, rather than getting a good vector on his flight path, which would have been handled by leaning, and this is always the first thing you should do with a cravat is lean and get, you know, get a straight vector, fly away from the terrain. So rather than trying to deal with the cravat or even getting your harness right away, um, just lean away from the problem side and, and fly straight. Even really high aspect wings can handle this unless it's a really big cravat. Um, and so you can lean away. The, the danger is leaning away and adding a lot of opposite break. And then that can obviously put you in a stall depending on how bad the cravat is on the non-flying side. So, but the first thing you want to do is just, you know, we need terrain clearance. And then I'm going to take you through his kind of, he calls it his clue bag, uh, because this is, this is all this is great. This is a, so number one, maintain aircraft control, fly away from the train without adding any additional unnecessary drag. This gets us altitude, which buys us time before fixing the cravat. Number two, the biggest threat from a cravat is added drag, which can a induce a turn toward the terrain or B induce a spiral and C reduce stall margins. Three, a cravat near the ground is super critical. A cravat at altitude is so much more manageable. Four, max weight shift to prior to using opposite brake is super important. If you are turning towards the cravat and you don't have all your weight into the open side of the wing, you're screwing up. Drag is the big threat with a cravat. Adding to that with unnecessary brake input exacerbates the situation. This one I'm not sure on. I need to check on this, but it makes sense to me. To increase stall margins, consider 50% or more bar. We do that with big ears. Why not a cravat? 
Number six, a cravat can be flagging or cupped. A small cupped cravat can be more dragged than a larger flagged cravat. Seven, if you're handed a cupped cravat, consider pulling a big ear on that side. It could end up being more material folded, but could take you from, from cupped to flag, flagged. We all know that a simple asymmetric big ear is easily manageable with weight shift. You need to assess this and use pilot discretion. It may be a good move, but could also make it worse. Eight, after establishing a good vector away from the terrain, work on removing the cravat. There are multiple options here, depending on the severity of the cravat and altitude. In all cases, aircraft control is paramount while clearing the cravat. Turns into terrain and stalls while clearing are, are unsatisfactory. At times, it may be necessary to fly with one hand on both toggles, etc. Okay, this is the good stuff. Number nine, clearing a cravat. A, use the brake on that side with short, sharp brake applications. Don't stall. B, pull the stabilo line. Identifying it may be difficult if the lines are slack. Use the open side to mark the color coding. C, or just have this memorized and have done it enough and done enough, enough SIV that you know which one your, which line is your stabilo. C, apply a big ear to the bad side and then clear that with the stabilo line. More slack lines around the cravat make the stabilo more effective in clearing it. A couple of arm lengths could be required. D, if trained and proficient and with enough altitude, spin it out. Spin entry is all that's required. Pull brake deep on the bad side until the brake line begins to go soft. Weight shift away from the spin and brake opposite to, the, to stop rotation. E, stall it out, which requires even more altitude than a spin entry. Again, must be SIV trained to be proficient. F, land with it as it is. And in this case, this pilot definitely could have done that. This cravat was, was quite small. Depending on how controllable the wing is, this could be a good option, especially if maneuvering simply fails to get enough altitude to try the above. G, throw your reserve. Throughout your flight on a crippled wing and at all times during the clearing process, always be ready to throw your reserve. If aircraft control is compromised, you can't get it back in time to, to avoid uncontrolled flight into terrain, throw. So that's quite a few steps, but the basics are the basics. Get away from the hill, get yourself some margin, <clears throat> be thinking about your reserve because they work even low and deal with the cravat. And that comes back to SIV training. Uh, my personal favorite is the spin, but that's the more advanced. And obviously that's when you have a bigger cravat, but done properly, you lose very little altitude. Uh, but of course you need altitude and you don't want to be messing around with that when there's the possibility of spinning back into the hill. So understand cravats, uh, they're no, nothing to be scared of as long as you have the margin. But these things uh, unfortunately can happen close to the ground and how you react could be uh, the difference between a bad day at the office and, and a terrific flight. So good luck and enjoy this show. Cheers. My guest today is Manu Bonti, a legend in the sport. He's been on the show before. This is the second one we've done with him, but I didn't know this. He was the weather router and one of the supporters for Pierre Remy in the x -Pier. And uh, he sent me a text right after the race, and I was, of course, watched, glued to it for the week. An amazing race, and Pierre was actually out in front going into the end, and then uh, Kriegel and Maxine got him. They made a couple of really nice moves and of course Kriegel very crazy ending and Kriegel was able to beat Maxime against all the odds yet again so I thought it'd be really fun to talk to a supporter usually we talk to the athletes but talk to a supporter and get their take on the philosophy and the risk and the 
how it all comes together. Uh, this was Pierre's first hike and fly race. He's of course a very famous uh, comp pilot and really big name in the sport, but this was his first foray into hike and fly and he got third against some uh, pretty tough competition. So he had a great race and obviously they had a great team. And so this is a story from kind of behind the scenes. I think you're gonna really enjoy it. Cheers. Manu, good to see you and have you on the show again. It's uh, wonderful to see your smiling face. It sounds like you guys had quite an adventure in the x so we're going to be talking a lot about the race, but I thought where would we should start would be to talk about Pierre a little bit. For those who don't follow comps very much, who are listening to the show, uh, may not be familiar with Pierre Remy, one of the more famous pilots in the world, but Tell us about Pierre and then we'll get into, I want to talk to you about what it was like supporting. That's a, you know, it's something I'm going to do for the first time here in, in a month over at the Dolomiti. But uh, yeah, tell me about Pierre and then we'll get into your adventure. Hey, Gavin, cool to meet you again on Cloud-Based Mayhem. So Pierre is, for people that do not know him, he's a... Um, was a really classic comp uh, champion. He won uh, the FAI uh, Awards in uh, 2017 and PwC Super Final in 2018. And starting from that moment, he started to pay attention to those um, type of competition like uh, XAlp, XPR, and he started to train. So that was really 2000. Um, 18, he really started to physically train, you know, uh, for this type of comp. And he had, you know, the ambition to uh, participate to the XPR 2020, which was cancelled due to um, COVID issues, you know. And here we are. He arrived in 2022 on the XPR. Um, he was physically really ready, but the team was, I would say, um, kind of improvised, you know, he called me a few weeks before uh, the comp asking me if I wanted to be support. And uh, then for the two other guys, you know, it was pretty much the same. So we went there just to see, you know, a little bit. But um, yeah, finally, we had a good adventure, good sensation. And it was pretty fun. Yeah. And I mean, I was watching the race. I got up at four o'clock in the morning all week to watch it. It was, it was going on during our U S nationals. So I was up early anyway, but, uh, he made some nice moves, you know, really, you know, the big day, day three, where all the leaders got way out in front and, and had some really nice flying. Uh, but the, the, the weather at the start was, was tough and he was fast on the ground as well. There was it, those first couple of days were, it looked pretty miserable. Yes, the two two first days were pretty miserable, uh, and I believe Maxim did the best job, you know, uh, from the team. Even if at the end of the second day, uh, Kriegel managed to make a move, um, yeah. But but the choice of Maxim they were a little bit better, and uh, the third day was um, the very first day we could fly and uh, looking. Looking at the weather forecast, at that moment, we believed maybe it would be the only flying day of the comp. 
you know, but finally it happened that we had some other offline days. Wow. Yeah, but everybody was like, that day we must be at the right place, you know, at the, at the right moment. And we had a third day, you know, a group of leaders yeah. where we had uh, mainly uh, Maxim and uh, Krigel, and also they were together with um, Noah, maybe, and... Uh, Simon, for sure. And so basically, we had those leaders, you know, in the front. And Pierre was a little bit behind. And we made a, a, a weather forecast and strategy. And for us, it was clear that in the um, high altitude, the, 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 the air was quite stable until late. And um, it would be unstable in the lower layer earlier. So this is the reason why we did not follow them uh, because we arrived a little bit later in Kandanshu and my plan was to go on the east face, stay relatively low to benefit, you know, the instability we had and finally Pierre. Um, I think it took off um, two hours before the other guys. Well, they made the first glide, then they climbed again, and then they had to wait for conditions to take off again. And at that moment, you know, Pierre was flying for a while. We had probably, I would say, three, four hours. We were three, four hours behind at that moment. And during the flight, at one moment, we passed first. And and then they had a good line. And, well, in the Peña Montanesa, um, we had only six kilometers, you know. We were just six kilometers behind. But that was definitely a good move we did. And on my opinion, they... You know, in this type of competition, they had no other choice because they wouldn't wait, you know, three hours to take off in the lower layers. So basically, they went, they had to go ahead. And this is sometimes you're trapped like this. And we had the same situation, but reversed. We had to wait, you know, later on. And then they caught with us again, you know, that was on day five. But in, in some moments, you know, you just need to do something because the athletes, they say, hey, I'm not going to wait. And so, of course, you know, you choose, you know, uh, one option, but you know that uh, later on, you know, in another place would be better. And this is, that was perfect for us because we were late and we arrived exactly at the right moment to take off on the east face low and they just took off and they climbed, they arrived super high, but it was not in place and they had to wait. And so basically, I would say we we passed them and then, you know, um, they got a little bit lucky on that because normally when they arrive, when you arrive from the route they took, there is a place where pass it is rather complicated and I really believed we would pass in front, but so it, it worked very well for them. And so everybody was kind of surprised around Broto, how they could pass, you know, uh, the national park. But yeah, that's that's the game. But finally, the move was quite good for us. Yeah, for sure. The decision and uh, the way Pierre uh, put it, you know, in um, into reality was, uh, was quite good. But that was kind of tricky, you know, because um, we know that to pass from the east face, you know, to the Coyorada, that would be kind of tricky. And he was actually, um, there were two uh, together, you know, to cross. And finally, one landed and Pierre managed to escape. So it was not, let's say, crystal clear it would be good, but um, he managed to do it and then he was clearly in the front so that was that was the first move that was not too bad and then 
well, then as the guy, they had a good line, he was chasing them till the end and they were putting like a crazy rhythm and uh, and that was um, virtually impossible to catch up with them. And I know he kept the distance, uh, but um, he couldn't catch up with them. That was uh, very intense flying. Everybody was so motivated and, and uh, yeah... I have something to say also about what happened and in that flight is that what what Kriegel, Simon and, and Maxim did, you know, um, from Montlude to go to the first point of the X, you know, like uh, um, Arbas is just amazing. That's route we hardly, I don't think, I mean, I know a little bit what happened in the Pyrenees, but maybe I'm, I make a mistake, but I don't think anybody ever reached from Montlude, Arbas, using that route. They just went, you know, in the mountains, on the lee side of little hills. They were barely protected. And then they managed to catch thermal, you know, to climb in the thermal and then push into the wind to pass in front of the mountain. They did that four times to reach um, Arbas. And for me, what they did was just from another what That probably one part of the X-Pier. I was so impressed what with what um, Maxim Kriegel and uh, Simon achieved, you know, uh, in terms of choice of um, of of route, which, you know, we know it's impossible. They didn't know it's impossible, so they did it, you know, basically. <laughs> so, but you know, it opened eyes, you know, and we were <laughs> we were just like, what? When I saw them, you know, from Molud go in direction of that south face, I just said, okay, they are dead, you know, it's never gonna work, you know. And then, you know, it worked for time. So basically. We learn, you know, <laughs> we learn from those comps for sure. I was going to ask, you know, because you live in the Pyrenees and, and Pierre lives in the, in the Pyrenees, how I've always thought that with the ex-Alps, you know, the pilots who live in Europe, you know, have a, have a pretty clear advantage because they just, they know it's a complicated place and they know the different systems and the valley winds and everything. And it's, it's really important to have knowledge of a place, but when I look at the Pyrenees, it's it's even in many ways much more complicated. You know, the, the roads never go in the direction of the route. And so the walking is it looks really hard. Um, but how important is it for the athletes to have knowledge of what the flying is like there and the fern and, and all that? Uh, what do you what do you think about that? Because it's it is interesting that you said, you know, Simon and and Kriegel, they're they're doing these things that the locals would go, nah, that's you don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I, on one hand, it's good to know the place. On the other hand, when you know it, you're limited. So that's basically when you open, we, we when you get in a yeah. place with fresh eyes, and uh, you come with your experience from other places. Um, basically, you know, like the the famous day. Um, Kriegel took off from uh, that was on day f um, four. He took off from Pic du Midi. In these conditions, we never fly. Nobody flies, you know, in France. Like uh, we we are we don't fly. Just I mean, Pierre doesn't fly in these conditions uh, regularly. And what did Kriegel? I looked at the track, 
And that's an amazing understanding of what could be wave flying. Okay, but when you learn paragliding in France, uh, for the first thing you learn, you know, in the French Pyrenees, you don't fly when it's south wind. And then little by little, you learn that when the south wind is not too strong, then you can still do things. And maybe the best days uh, we are with uh, light south wind. But then, you know, when the, the wind is that strong, Everybody stays home and take care of the tomatoes in his garden, you know. And basically, um, he just amazed us, you know, there. But that was just, you know, like a certain type of flying in very specific conditions. It's amazing. It's Krieger. But what they did, you know, between Montlude and Arbas for me is something we could do, but we never do because... We don't believe it might work. In competition, they go that route uh, with the, the strong feeling that it's the best thing to do, and actually it works. So that's, on, as I said, you know, on one hand, you know, you know some stuff for regular conditions, but the, when the conditions are not regular, maybe um, uh, the guys are able to invent something super special. But even in regular conditions, because that day was regular conditions, they're able to invent new routes that finally, uh, you know, from the dogma, we have everybody has you know more or less dogma you are not really uh, ready in your mind to break the dogma and invent this type of solution to get from one place to another one pretty much they stayed on the line which was you know uh, strategically well when you in terms of out of flying in the Pyrenees that was kind of super weird and they stayed on the line shortest line you know from one point to another one and finally they they managed to achieve you know the the task to reach the goal I mean the place they wanted to reach and following this line was for me at least you know really amazing but Pierre he did another route more classic and finally he got to the place um, not so long I wouldn't say what they did was crazily efficient because finally at the end Pierre got to um, Arbas just a little bit after them and at the Peña Montanesa he had at least you know six kilometers you know behind so I wouldn't say what they did was uh, just uh, mega efficient and then they put everybody you know back in the wind but however it worked and that already is quite amazing this is basically um, my opinion i don't remember menu if it was day five or six but i was watching and pretty much that was the day that was supposed to be 70 kilometers an hour wind at the top of the peaks really 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 strong southwest and when i i just got on and watched a few times and and everyone was on the ground. Uh, Maxime and and Kriegel were quite close to one another. They had kind of taken a different route the night before, but they were pretty close to one another hiking up in the Alpine. And then the next time I refreshed, Pierre was in the air and and got way out in front of those guys. And he just and I was watching his speeds and they were fast, but they weren't too crazy. You know, I was seeing a lot of, you know, 55 K an hour, 60 K an hour. So it seemed like it wasn't too rowdy, but was that a scary flight? Was that because the the forecast that day looked pretty unflyable. It looked really, really strong. And it, I would have thought it would have been pretty scary. The nice thing is he had a little bit of tailwind. And so, but he made a move there that, uh, that was 
was incredible. And it, it looked to me like he was in a position that he could win the race. You know, that at the end, it was the very, the end of the day, those guys didn't fly the, at the end of the day. And, and Pierre got, got quite a ways out ahead. Yeah. That's that day was uh, pretty incredible. The strong wind day was mm -hmm. the day before. In fact, that the day where uh, Kriegel took off from, uh, from, uh, from Pic du Midi. Well, Pierre also took off and Maxime took off, but, um, Kriegel was the first to take off and that was kind of hairy. The the day after, this is the day we did that special move and I'm so surprised. For me, it's just, you know, um, uh, something I don't understand how um, uh, Kriegel did not see it. For me, it's maybe, uh, um, you know, Kriegel no. doesn't make many mistakes. <laughs> But I think that they did a mistake for sure. Mm -hmm. And... Um, And uh, for me, it was very sure it wouldn't be flyable around 3,000 meters because the forecast, as you say, was 60, 70 kilometers per hour. And the situation for forecasting was not really comfortable because we had two uh, fronts, you know, passing, you know, the first days. It was very unstable. All the models, they were saying something different. And we were uh, spending our time to find the good model for, you know, the day, X day, you know, have the good model. And I had to use three different models during the race. I didn't use the same model, you know, for the wind and the same model for the instability because, you know, one model was better for instability, another one, and it changed, you know, during the race. So that was really a hard work to be on the good model to make the forecast. That day I was pretty sure um, taking the route uh, Trigger took, he wouldn't fly. And I was pretty sure going to Castejón de Sos, we would fly. And I had absolutely no doubt about it because the day before, the wind was stronger. And one guy of the X-Pier, he passed by, which was really late, you know, <laughs> he passed by Castejón and he flew. And I had also report, you know, from the schools in Castejón that the conditions were quite strong, but flyable. I would, I would say not flyable right. for students of the school, but flyable for athletes, you know. And this is basically one guy, I think, I don't remember his name, maybe a Spanish guy, or but he took off, you know, in Casteron and he flew a bit, you know, in direction of Sauvegarde, you know, to come back to France. At the moment, you know, um, the leading, the lead of the comps was going the other way. You know, I, he was trying to go to, I would say, um, our bus and the guys that were coming, you know, from back, you know, from uh, Pic du Midi. So basically I was pretty sure it would be flyable, but there is a little, very special phenomenon that happens in Casteron is that when you have southwest wind in Casteron is southeast, not for long, you know, as soon as you fly a little bit, then you are again in the southwest flow. But in the lower layer, it was super clear in the airgrams that below 2000 meters, the wind was not too strong. And we have also... I would say a wind, wind uh, central, you know, a wind weather station uh, at 2,400 meters, you know, on top of Castejón. And I had, you know, the history of that station. I was looking at the history and I know this um, weather station is a venturi. So when we have south wind, it always, you know, uh, overrate, you know, the wind. And I knew it, 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 it was flyable for Pierre, you know, the day before. And so that day even 
even more flyable because the wind was uh, was uh, forecasted weaker. Uh, but at 3,000 meters, it was super strong for sure. And when I saw Kriegel going in direction of Gourblanc, then I said, wow, that's our chance, you know. <laughs> and at that moment, you're, it's always so complicated to take the decision because you have Kriegel going one way, you have Maxim following another route, but finally the same strategy. And you say to the guys, okay, we'll do something totally different. And then the guys are like, hey, are you sure? <laughs> but yeah, we did it. It worked. And at the end of the day, we had uh, 33 kilometers. We were, um, I would say, in the morning. We were probably five hours or six, you know, behind Kriegel. And at the end of the day, we were 33 kilometers in front of him. And and he walked crazy. Um, I, I measured what he walked that was like from hell, you know. I think he made more than 4,000 meters, you know, um, positive and maybe 4,500 meters, you know, uh, going down. And, um, and we walked just. 2000 meter so and the number of kilometers not not even mentioning the numbers of kilometers and at the end of the day when maxim was more or less catching up with him i watched and he was still climbing at 1000 meter per hour you know after that long walk i was just like what yeah, a machine strong. you know and pierre was so happy to do all that route you know flying and uh, he validated you know the stuff and we were so happy to have 33 kilometers to be 33 kilometers in the front but i was pretty sure it wouldn't last much because um they were sleeping high the southwest wind was quite strong i really believe they could take off early and and fly in our direction kind of far away but i never imagine they would get to Torre del Ori that high. You know, I really believe maybe they land, you know, at the foot of Torre del Ori and maybe they have to walk up 1,700 meters, you know, to get to the takeoff. But actually, that was crazy because um, Kriegel and Maxim, they managed, you know, to soar the mountain. Then there is a big valley to pass. They arrived on the mountain. They managed to climb a little bit. And then if you look, with a glide ratio of 12, you know, from that mountain, you arrive at the foot and they arrived almost at the top, you know. And when they arrived at the place, Pierre was, finally, they couldn't climb. They had to land and walk. So it was impossible for Pierre to take off early. If he would have taken off early, he would have bombed out and then you lose everything, you know. So yeah. basically, I was kind of happy uh, that he landed at the bottom of that mountain the day before. So he had to walk up the mountain because if he landed at the top, um, he would have said, okay, I go, I go. I couldn't have kept him here. So that was good to have him, you know, walk a while, not to arrive too early on the top. And when he arrived there, he looked at the condition. He said to me, yeah, you know, um, it's not too good for the moment. And we knew the guys already took off. They were arriving. I said, okay. Let's wait and let's fly with them anyways. If we, if we go alone, uh, we just take the risk to bomb out. And 
anyway they will catch up uh, with us you know later and uh, it was also the problem of the city air the airspace of uh, la seu d'urgel you know which um, makes you need to go in the back so if you don't have a minimum of instability and uh, you cannot go my forecast was the instability was would be good around uh, 10:30 11 and in fact they managed to escape at 10 but it was like 30 minutes before but they managed you know to climb just a little bit playing the game the tree together they managed to do it one one pilot alone on my opinion even at uh, 10 would have been super complicated to reach you know the mountain range in the back and keep on going passed by, you know, Andor, and finally they nailed the turn point super early. It was, I don't remember, 12.30 or something like this. And that was uh, really uh, amazing, you know, how they managed to uh, fly so fast between Torre del Ori and... Uh, and uh, the Sardine. Manu, what was the uh, what were the different roles on your team? It sounds like you were in charge of the weather, but you said there was three supporters. Is that right? And how how did you? Because the, it sounded like the team came together kind of late and was improvised. Um, you know, I know how much goes in. You know, there's a lot to do when you're supporting an athlete. Um, how, how did you divvy it up? Who was doing what? And and what would you maybe change if you had the opportunity to do it again? Um, what I would well, the, the team was uh, four people in total with Pierre and three people. Two guys, they were on the field with him. Okay. Um, the two guys on the field, they were quite strong, you know, in running and uh, and uh, walking in the mountains or on the flat also. One was more specialist of uh, flat and the other one uh, is really comfortable, you know, in the mountains, climbing mountains, you know, is uh, quite strong. Um, and so basically they would switch, you know, all the time. But Pierre barely got alone, you know, um, to walk. They were, you know, all the time, you know, supporting him on the field. And that was good for the mentor of Pierre to have one guy, you know, running with him almost all the time. Um, my job uh, initially was to provide a weather forecast in the morning and another one at night. But finally, I was in front of my computer from 5 a.m. to midnight because um, uh, the situation was so complicated, so unstable that it was... Um, really important sometimes to update information during the day and um, finally it happened that I was giving also that was also in the deal at the beginning I had to give uh, my opinion on the strategy uh, so and at the beginning I was just you know giving an overlook and at the end I was a little bit more uh, I mean uh, present you know on the strategy um, but um, what we would change I think in terms of team we would just change nothing because that was uh, an excellent team. Uh, Pierre was uh, super ready physically. Um, the two guys on the field, they did an incredible job. Um, that's uh, Nicolas and uh, Mathieu. And uh, finally, I didn't do too bad you know, on the strategy and the weather forecasting. So we did quite a, a good job together. Um, maybe we could just, you know, like there were some communication problem 
you know, localization problem uh, we should uh, work on. And also, I just realized um, talking with um, some friends of mine like Antoine Girard <laughs> that they have developed a full set of tools, you know, to figure out what is the best way to take if it's flyable, just glide down, or if it's not flyable, you need to walk all the way, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so this would have eased clearly my working load. And I, I really believe, you know, like we were absolutely not ready, you know, on this uh, type of uh, uh, matter. And we have a huge um, progression uh, on this on this field. Uh, but, you know, basically at the end, you just realize that everything finally um, comes sometimes just on uh, luck good luck bad luck you know maybe i don't think when we went to uh, castejon we had luck i don't believe this but probably when on day three we decided to choose the east face and the fact that pierre managed to climb again you know on the coyorada this was probably luck you know when uh, kriegel and pierre together they crossed the Cerdagne and they make a low save, 80 meters for Pierre. So this is sometimes, you know, luck and, you know, talent, of course, you know, but uh, sometimes you're grounded and decision, you're a little bit too much on the right and the left and you're grounded. And so basically this is it. The fact that, you know, at the end, you know, this epic uh, conclusion we had you know uh, with um, you know the three guys you know and what happened on the canigo and everything so sometimes you know you put a lot of things you know together and uh, it relies more on being at the right place at the right moment and sometimes it's just a question of luck you know sometimes you're late and you arrive somewhere and poof it works and so and you know that's uh, but in terms of um, improvement, we have a large room of improvement on the tools, I believe. The team itself was uh, naturally ready and uh, it worked super well, you know, in the field. And they had a super good time together. They enjoyed and me be behind my computer, I had also, you know, a kind of fun. So we enjoyed, you know, the adventure. There is also the point you mentioned before. Yeah, you, you asked me uh, how important is it to know, you know, the mountain range. In fact, Pierre doesn't know very well the whole mountain range. When he flies, he always flies from our valley. Of course, you know, um, a few weeks before the Xpeer, he flew 200 kilometers, you know, um, I say a triangle, you know, 200 kilometers in the north face of the Pyrenees, which was never done before. But he didn't do it with um, the, he, he did it with the X1, you know, and with his heavy harness, with his comp gear, you know. So basically, um, the place he knows very well is something like from our place uh, 50 kilometers to the west and uh, let's say 100 kilometers to or 80 kilometers to the um, 
well, 50 to the west and, and I would say something like 100 to the east. But he hardly flies in Spain, maybe had a comp, you know, sometimes in Castejon, but that's um, that was not really um, a place he knows. But something he, maybe a room of improvement, I don't know, I should discuss this with him, is uh, fly more maybe with uh, the specific gear he used. I don't know, maybe this could help also, but um, he had very little uh, flying time, airtime with this specific gear he used, you know, for this comp. He flew the he flew the climber, I understand, and then what what harness did he fly? It was a specific harness from Cortel, uh, a pro harness pro. for this type of comp. Yeah, that's what I used in the last race as well, that Calibri mm. Pro. Um, and then, will do you think he'll, he'll does he have his eyes on the X Alps? Will will that be something he'll do in the future? We have a meeting uh, Monday to make kind of a debrief of the adventure and discuss a little bit all those topics and see, you know, what else. Um, I know he loves the Pyrenees. Um, discussing at the end of the race with the other guys, uh, many of them, they said the X Alps is less demanding, you know, like what we did in this XPR, you know. And so, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I think everything is open, but um, um, that was that was tough, you know. The two first days, they were super tough, and it impacted a lot, you know, um, the rest of the race, uh, starting with two days where you barely fly. I mean, the second day, I mean, they just made maybe one glide. Uh, that's that's kind of tough, and it's very specific training you must do on on the flat on the on on the you know on the road, which um, I'm not sure Pierre uh, actually did, you know. And so basically, that was kind of tough. But um, many guys said, okay, you know, um, X Alps, you have uh, you have to start, you know, one hour earlier. You have to end, you know. One hour later, but finally, you always manage to fly somehow, and uh, and it's um, less hard, you know, like this one. I don't know, but um, we'll discuss that for sure uh, Monday. Did you have, uh, you know, on our first show, you and I talked a lot about all the guiding you do and teaching, and you've been at this game an awfully long time. Did you find it personally stressful to see? what these guys are, are flying in and what they're, you know, in, in the weather conditions they're f flying in. And did you find it? Um, I don't know. Did, is it, is it uh nerve wracking to see it? Cause it's a totally different kind of, you know, like you said, it, they're flying days that normally you'd go play pool. <laughs> you're not, you wouldn't be in the air and they're doing it mm -hmm. over and over and over again. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite intense. That was, extremely uh, stressful for several reasons. The first reason is that you give advices and you don't pay yourself the mistakes. And you have in front of you a guy that has been training for three or four years and he's ready for that. And if you make a mistake, he's not too good. So this was uh, one first part. The second reason is stressful is that you need to make a mix between um, decision you would take for the best flying and decision you take to keep a strategic position in in the race when you have uh, 
I would say, Maxime, you are playing the game, you know, with uh, Kriegel and Maxime. You don't want to make a move where you will see them, you know, fly away and uh, from the third place, maybe you end up 10 or whatever. So uh, you can, as we did, you know, start uh, at the rank, you know, six or seven and end up first, but you can also start at the uh, place of second and end up 10, you know, so basically this is a big stress about that. And then the third point that was really stressful for me, but it's very personal, is that a month before I was um, helping a friend to fly uh, an incredible BV flight adventure in Peru and uh, unfortunately uh, he had an accident and he died and so I was um, kind of nervous to I, I have I am very very confident in Pierre's skills abilities it's incredible pilot but I know that in a race you know people can take risks that are you know uh, different than what they would do you know normally because the pressure because the team because they want you know to achieve something and all my briefings they were ending the quiz okay keep it safe so that was like my primary concern you know have fun and keep safe and um, of course you know the flying day at Pic du Midi was uh, a little bit uh, borderline on my opinion you know for everybody you know that flew but that's my vision my vision of with my level of pilot and of course I'm not in that place it's difficult you know to judge this but that was uh, actually giving me of course you know a certain level of uh, pressure also so three three reasons why i was kind of nervous and on, on this uh, on this race and um, and i want to say uh, a big hello to henry that had uh, you know this accident in the in peru and uh, yeah that's uh, like that he didn't make uh, any mistake he just got unlucky and so that's also the bad side of paragliding yeah, of course. And of course, we're, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, Antoine's partner in, in Peru and, and then, you know, another very famous XAPS pilot, Nick Nainens, very recently had a, had a terrible accident and he was supposed to be in the X pier. And you know, it's, it is something, a part of this sport that uh, just keeps raining down on us, doesn't it? It's not something you can really escape, but Manu, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. We're going to talk about the dramatic end uh, while we still have a hopefully decent connection here. But I also wanted to ask you about philosophy of kind of Pierre and what it was like, you know, in seven days, uh, you experience as an athlete, a lot of ups and downs and the physical hardship and everything else. And, you know, we have I've spent quite a bit of time with Kriegel and with Maxime, and they're very different. Their approaches. Kriegel's is famously very Swiss. Uh, he doesn't get too distraught. He stays pretty positive. Um, he always really looks like he's having a lot of fun. You know, Kriegel's just always looks like he's having a good time. Uh, whereas Maxime can be, and he he would be the first to admit this that he's uh, he can be pretty emotional, uh, and you know he he gets gets pretty upset and, and, uh, you know, just a little bit more, maybe goes to the extremes more. And I'd love to just hear what's, what's Pierre like, what, what is the kind of the philosophy of the team? Is it very much, is it really serious? Is it really fun? Uh, and what do you think in the end 
works and what worked for your team because you did incredibly well. Um, on on Pierre, with Pierre, you know, uh, Pierre works that way. You know, at the beginning of uh, a project, he just you know tried to set up where he wants to arrive. You know, and uh, he will just do what he can do, you know, to arrive there. But it's don't don't forget that it was a first uh, first try. You know, it was the very first try. We never trained before. We never went, you know, one uh, weekend, you know, together, you know, to train or do something. The first day they really did something together was the first day of the comp. So basically, um, we were kind of relaxed. And um, as you, you were talking about philosophy, and this is exactly what I was asking regularly to Pierre, you know, like, what is your philosophy? Because basically in every decision you take, you can either say, okay, I am a gambler and I like to try something and maybe uh, become first, or I am, I want to secure my position. So basically in terms of strategy, it's really like, what, what is your mood? What do you have in mind? And, and during the race, the mood of Pierre could have changed, you know, a couple of times, you know, in this matter. And so I was always asking him before to propose him some options, you know, in what what was his, uh, his, his mood, you know, like, do you want to try something or do you want to secure your position? Therefore, um, as it was the first comp like this, I don't think um, Pierre, he, he had a, a goal to arrive, you know, in the, I would say, five, ten first guys, you know. So basically, when he realized he was able to play, you know, in this uh, in this group, you know, of the ten first guys, he was he was kind of happy. And then when we made, you know, like a couple of interesting moves and finally uh, we were really, you know, in the lead, then came the questions, you know, about, you know, what do you want to do with that? You know, do you want to secure your position and or do you want to, uh, try something and this is exactly finally what what happened at the end you know at one moment when we arrived close to Kanigu I had the strong feeling that we had to let uh, Kriegel go uh, alone and walk um, six seven kilometers uh, 800 meters you know um, up to take off on the south uh, side of the mountain and this was at Col de Mont and uh, Col de Monte, a little bit before, you know, uh, Canigou. And actually, uh, by chance, you know, it happened that Pierre landed at this call. And I was like, at that moment, I was really focused on, I should tell him to land here and go past this mountain on foot and take off on the other side. But I was not sure it was very takeoffable. I was not sure, you know, he would uh, uh, get, you know, um, uh, super good conditions. However, my soundings were telling me they had, you know, like 500 meters more ceiling and more, you know, instability on the other side of that mountain than going on the north side of uh, of the Canigou. And at that time, your second, you have uh, Kriegel just a little bit in front. You have um, Maxim um, in the back, and it's so hard, you know, to take a decision that would be totally different. And so that was once again the question, you know, what do you want to do? And at that time, I think you must be super strong to take this type of decision, believe a lot in 
in your in, in yourself you know to try that and um, that's that's the whole difficulty of this type of race you know and you're convinced of something um it's not the same situation for instance when Pierre is in Valluron. In front, you have Kriegel and Maxime. The guys in the back, they are fairly far away. And you take another option. You know that if it works, you beat everybody. But if you lose, you don't lose that much. And in this situation, you are in second. You know that, you know, maybe you're lucky and you finish first. <laughs> and would you take a specific option, you know, when you have Kriegel in front of you? And the terrain is not the terrain of Kriegel. It's not like if he's flying in his garden, but you're not flying in your garden either. Meaning, um, Sardine, we hardly go fly there. I mean, I flew there, you know, a long time ago, but um, this is all the memories I have. Pierre doesn't have a tough knowledge, a strong knowledge of this area. And specifically, you know, arriving on the Canigou, you know, like this, usually when you go flying in Sardine, you fly around from Rome. You don't go, you know, that direction too much. So basically, this was an unknown terrain. The excellent cross-country pilot of Font Romeu, they regularly go to Serre and to the sea. Um, it's not not so often either, but we didn't have the knowledge. And so at that moment, we decided, you know, to to follow to follow Kriegel. And then Maxime arrived. He got a little bit better thermal. He arrived a little bit higher, you know, on that ridge of the Canigou. And he managed to climb, you know, on this ridge, which ends up in a circus that is totally close with the summits at 2,700 meters. And that was like so oddly he could pass. And then we saw him climb and pass. And we are just like, what? <laughs> and at that moment, um, Krigeli had such an incredible um, decision to land in the, such a nasty place, uh, climb like a goat, you know, super fast. And Pierre did the same, but he landed a little bit lower. It was a little bit more complicated to escape from the place he was. And he, and yeah, that was the move of Krigel was like, uh, he's ready to anything. You know, he has the mirrors on. He knows what's, what's going on in his back, you know. And as soon as uh, um, Maxim uh, picked up altitude, then uh, Krigel knew what he had to do, you know. And uh, what he had to do was pr pretty wild and Pierre did the same. And, but um, he did it and, and, and that's it. And then at that moment, probably I would say um, um, Maxim got lucky and then a little bit later he got lucky and uh, Kriegel got lucky. But finally, you know, um, what you need is to be a little bit in the front at the moment you cross the finish line. And that's what uh, Kriegel managed to do, I would say, as usual. But uh, <laughs> this time maybe had a little bit more entertainment than, <laughs> than other times because um, Maxim was really hot and Pierre was hot too, you know, so. Yeah, that last day was, was just... It was a roller coaster, right? You know, Pierre started the day off ahead and then Maxime and Kriegel flew together and they, they caught him up, like you said. And, and, uh, and then it just looked like Maxime had it, you know, it was, it was, the race was over. Maxime won. And then, and, and suddenly Kriegel flies over his head and flies within three kilometers of the final turn point and wins the race. And, the first thing I said to my friend, Ben, who supported me in all my races was, 
ah, he's so, it's incredible. He did it again. It's so lucky. And he said, it's not luck. It's Kriegel. He does this every time. And, and, uh, you know, I, as I understood it, he and Maxime were basically flying together and, and he, like you said, he, he stuffed it into this really tough place and climbed up higher into better air and then, and then jumped him in the air. And, but how do you know to do that? How did he, how did he have that in his mind to, I mean, were the, were the signs obvious or was this just Kriegel being an eagle? No, he didn't really had better air. Um, what happened is that when they arrived on that ridge of the Kanigu, we all knew that would be cool, you know, to get on the little south face and climb there and pass, you know, like Maxim did. Kriegel and Pierre, they were in the front. But they never managed. They worked a while, you know, on this ridge to try to uh, get on the south face. And they knew they need, they they want to do this, you know. And the other option was to fly around the north face of Kanigu, and we know it's possible, but it's long and it's oddly because you you get low, you know, all the time. It's a little bit complicated, tricky. But that was, you know, the, the option if you cannot climb there. So they arrived there, they try to climb, it doesn't work. So they say, okay, we start to go on the north face. At this moment, Maxim arrives just a little bit higher because he had the chance to have a thermal that climbed a little bit higher before. He arrives on this ridge and he climbs directly. Boom. And so at that moment, it was quite obvious that if you go on the top of the mountain and you take off on that south face, you will climb also. Okay, so this is uh, for uh, Kriegel that was crystal clear. So this is what he did. He landed, you know, in this nasty place, climbed the mountain 400 meters, take off in another nasty place and get, you know, to 2,700 meters, 650, like did the, exactly like did Maxim, and pretty much takes the same route like Maxim. He follows Maxim. Then they had to cross a big valley. This is the valley of uh, Amélie-les-Bains, which the flying site of Serre. And Maxim, he got to Serre probably, I would say, 20 minutes before uh, Kriegel or maybe half an hour. I don't, I cannot be, uh, you know, exact on this. And when Maxim arrived on Serre, he will climb, he climbed on the mountain, reached 1.5 and he has the goal at 30 kilometers with a light uh, south wind, you know, against he's flying into the wind to get to the goal. And so he's at 1.5 and he knows it's not enough, definitely. So he waits, he walked the place, he gets to 1515, 1-3, and at this moment, he says, okay, if I wait more, I will end up at 1,000 meters, you know, on the mountain, and he goes. Kriegel arrive later on in the very same place, okay? He gets a little bit more altitude when, when Maxim went, you know, and finally he finds nothing, well, he find a little bubble, you know, and he just passed, you know, the highway and he's on the ground. And Kriegel, strategically, he knows that he's behind. So strategically, there is no hurry. Pierre is far in the back. He has uh, Maxime in front of him. Mm, if he goes for a glide, maybe for sure he gets to Maxime, you know, a little bit behind him. And then he has to race like crazy, maybe beat him, you know, uh, on the running. But uh, Maxime is quite good in running too, you know. So basically it's not sure he will get him. So he wait, he wait, he wait. And then at one moment he goes. He has a little bit more altitude than Maxime. Maybe 
he has like uh, 200 meters more. And in my opinion, there is a north wind passing the, um, the little call where you have the highway that is entering, you know, the south face. And when Maxim, he went a little bit lower, then he got pretty much caught in this uh, north uh, airflow. And, um, and, and, and Kriegel, basically, he flew above that tube. I, I, this is my understanding, and I discussed this with uh, um, some, some guys that are specialists of the area, and they quite believe this is what happened, is that, you know, Kriegel, for some luck, understanding, I don't know of the situation, luck because finally he got, he managed, you know, to, to, to leave the mountain higher than, uh, than uh, Maxim. What could have done Maxim? He could have waited there. You know, he could have waited there, you know, and say, okay, I wait, I wait. But the risk is that finally, you know, um, he doesn't find the thermal anymore. You know, it was not uh, super active, you know, at that moment. And then he's also landed there. So uh, his, his decision, in my opinion, was not bad. It's difficult to take another decision when you are half an hour in front of uh, the followers and you don't make it again to your ceiling and you spend already a while, you know, trying to make it and you're just like, okay, he's not going to come again. I go, you know, before it's too late. So this is the decision he took. Mm. Obviously, he was wrong because when uh, Kriegel arrived, he managed to climb uh, higher and, and finally he passed above the highway and then he found another one. And that was, the game was over at that moment. Maxim was underground. Uh, Krieger was tumbling right above his head. <laughs> uh, the life tracking was pretty much fucked at that time. And so it was not so clear. I was looking at the life tracking and I reported to Pierre, hey, Maxim and uh, Kriegel are landed, you know, on the other side of the highway. And then I looked a little bit more carefully and and Kriegel was um, 600 meters above the head of Maxim. And I said, I reported to Pierre, okay, no, 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 it's not like that, you know. <laughs> and unfortunately, um, Pierre did the same move, finally. He climbed to the mountain, he took off on the south face, he managed to climb to 2650, you know, like the two other guys. But a little bit later, when he got to Serre, he couldn't at all climb, so... Probably, you know, like Kriegel arrived at the perfect moment <laughs> where the conditions, they were just perfect. So he could climb a little bit higher than Maxim did. And Pierre never managed to climb at all, you know, so it was just a window. And, um, and, and that's it, you know, I mean, he, he got there. So and he managed to climb higher. And then um, when he passed in the flat, he got another thermal and then he landed, you know, close to the finish line. But um, yeah, for Pierre, there was, we, we had big projects. I have, I had seen, you know, this movement of air uh, turning around, um, um, you know, like the, the little cities they have in the flat. And so I said to Pierre, okay, we will go along the mountain, along the Albert, you know, uh, following the mountain before to go to the finish line. So we had, we still had some plan, you know, not to finish first, but maybe to finish second. But it was not possible for Pierre to climb again. The conditions, they were dead at the time he arrived. But that was just, I would say, maybe 40 minutes after Kriegel, something like this. And it was for him just impossible to climb. So that's... Um, 
Well, as I always say to the guys, you know, they fly that fly in my in my cross country class. Mm. When a guy got lucky, you know, all the time, maybe it's not luck, you know. At the end, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe in our mind, you know, it's luck, but um, maybe for him it's not luck, you know. I mean, he, that's what what your your supporter says. It's true, you know. At the end. Krigel won, you know, so basically we can analyze the stuff and say, okay, um, they went to the same place, my team got a little bit lower, Pierre couldn't climb and Krigel arrived at the moment between uh, them and he was able to climb higher and then it happened super good for him, but you know, that's uh, that's um, I don't know yeah I, I have a doubt you know about the luck and stuff like this Maxime would have been even a little bit more late doing the same move Pierre and Kriegel would have been further you know in the north face and then there would have been probably no way they catch with him you know so it's sometimes mm. the point of being you crazy know, timing at the right place at the right moment when Maxime arrived on the Canigou he arrived exactly at the right moment at the right altitude to climb and the two other guys they were not exactly at the good altitude and not certainly at the right moment so well moment maybe not but altitude and then for me I still have this question in my mind if we had landed at Col de Monte and if we had walked you know one hour to take off you know on the other side what would have happened, you know? And so that's always, you know, a question we want, we will never have, you know, the answer because it will be impossible virtually to repeat the situation. Yeah, those those questions live with you forever. There's always the what ifs of all the races I've done in the XOPS. There's always, ah, oh, in 2015, if I'd only done that. In 2017, <laughs> I'd only done that. And yeah, it's uh, it's just part of the part of the fun and part of the adventure. <laughs> well. Manu, thanks for sharing your story. You guys rocked it. It was very impressive. And uh, and you were even out in the lead there for a while. I thought you guys had it. But um, nice work and a uh, big hug to Pierre. And looking forward to racing with him here soon. And uh, congratulations. But thanks for sharing this, this uh, cool adventure you guys had with us. Thank you, Gavin, for um, having me on the show. And that was a pleasure to, to share this. And uh, yeah, um, we are quite happy to have put, you know, some fun in the in the race. And uh, the fact that finally, the last day, Simon arrived later and, you know, flew, you know, uh, midday, you know, while Pierre was walking, put us enough pressure to be super happy to be third because uh, the same thing could, well, I'm not sure, you know, because the south wind was stronger, but we never know, you know, man, Simon could have, you know, passed uh, above the head of Pierre while he was uh, working on the flat. So um, we were definitely all the team super happy to be third, you know, on the podium because that was kind of hot, you know, behind. Yeah, that was that. And, and Simon can never be counted out either. He also had a great race. But yeah, for, for rookies going into such a hard event, you guys really crushed it. Very impressive. Thank you so much. Thanks, buddy. If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher, or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, 
lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind the scenes costs. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people, and these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear we don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us, then just let me know and I'll set you up with an account. Of course, that'll be lifetime. And hopefully in a, you're being in a position someday to be able to support us. But you'll find all that on the website. Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought Cloud-Based Mayhem merchandise, t-shirts or hats or anything, you should be all set up. You should have an account. And you should be able to access all that bonus material now. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate your support, and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.